Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we've got the legendary, and I say this because we only speak his name in hush and reverent tones, uh, back on the show again is um, our good friend Mike Beasley. Um, and I'll just say this, if you know, you know, with regard to Mike Beasley. So you are just coming af- off of a 120-day um, bizarro land session. Can I say bizarro land? Um, that would maybe best describe this. This was a weird session. I just, I remember, I think we were toward the end of February. Um, and I always think about my mom's birthdays right around that time. And I, and I think I'm spending more time on the phone talking to Beasley, um, on this time of year, my mom's birthday, um, than I am talking to my mom, but that was not the case this year. This year was bizarre in every way. Um, so can we set the tone a little bit um, with this by doing a quick little civics lesson, um, especially with regard, regard to what's happening next? Well, it's good to see you again. How Set the tone What? what oh, for the session. Next. Yeah, for the session. So um, I think one of the things, so my phone was blowing up um, the last two days with, uh, people asking me, okay, what's next? What's next? What, what's, uh, um, what happened with this bill? Where's this going? They're all trying to figure out, okay, now what's next, um, with regard to the session. So let me just say in 35 years of being around this process, I've never seen so many bills still alive towards the end of session. So when we started two weeks out, there were still 350 bills alive out of 650 that were introduced. And half of those were House bills still in the House. So um, in my mind, that makes it a very difficult environment, not only for legislators, but folks like Action 22 and others to kind of figure out and, and watch what's going on to make sure that we can affect policy so it isn't just affecting us. And so having said that, they managed to get through several of those bills. Uh, around 40 or so died um, on midnight on Tuesday because they weren't didn't have enough time to get through the process. What's and the so normal? For the, What's the normal number on that in a regular year? Uh, in the single, in, yeah, in, like in a single number, five, just six, very yeah. few. Yeah, it's not it's not unheard of what what they how they manage their calendar, but it is unusual. And um, and it's, but the sheer volume that they had left, and we can talk about that in a minute. But so after. Um, The governor has from 10 days from the end of session, so until June 10th, to um, sign all the bills that have been sent to his desk. And and he's going to have quite a few. I would say conservatively, he's going to have around 250 bills on his desk to sign by June 10th, which is quite a bit of work for for the governor. And you're going to be reading his name every day in the paper for the next uh, month because he's going to be traveling around the state, I'm sure, signing bills and talking to folks about what what they just accomplished. So nor I looked the other day at just to see how many he'd actually signed. Um, 
already and it was it was not um it was like i think i counted maybe 24 um just looking at how many he'd already signed into law which is usually it's the other way like he's got like 50 or something to sign by this time of the set by the end of the session right well, if you look at statistically, I think the governor had only been delivered one bill in the month of January and February to sign. So that was a good early indicator that the work among the majority party in the legislature and the governor hadn't really progressed to a point where they could start moving bills. And I, we were joking on the last night of session that I now know how billionaires who want to give away their money have a hard time because the legislature were billionaires uh, especially with federal <laughs> funds this time. And they uh-huh. really struggled with giving away their money. So I said, well, now we all, all know how Oprah feels. Uh, <laughs> free you know, car, free just, car, free car. You get a free car. <laughs> you, they wanted to give a free car to everybody, but they really struggled on how to do it. And really important you know, policies, especially in housing and behavioral health, a lot of uh, federal spending there. And my big fear, you saw how hard it was to pass the legislation to obligate you know to create the programs to spend those federal dollars and my big fear right now as a casual observer of the process is uh that we're going to give a lot of money back uh to the federal government at the end of these programs because the legislative part was easy getting the money out the door is actually going to be the hard part and i especially worry about that in housing i think the last count I had, for example, that the Division of Housing needs to add 60 FTE mm-hmm. uh, just to on top of all the employees they have now. And I, I just really fear um, for them and how they're going to get this done. And I think we all have an obligation now to try and help them, um, you know, m- meet their mission. And there's a time clock on that as well as far as getting that money out um, and how, uh, I mean, it, we're on a time clock. So they've got, what, a year they have, from depending on the program, they have until 2026 to get the money out uh, officially obligated and spent out the door, or the Fed, that monies will revert back to the federal government. So but they it's have between 2024 and 2026. Right. So 24, they have to have an obligated 26. It has to be out the door, right? It depends on the program, but okay. yes. So, yeah. so that was one thing that I saw that some people were throwing around. Will they do an emergency or special session mm. to designate that funding? Well, a lot of that uh, spending guidelines from the state legislature of federal funds was done in this last session and these bills um, that that they that they passed. And so now again, so that that seemed to be hard, right, to the outside world. But I will say from experience, the hard part isn't going to be the legislation they just passed that set up these rules. It's actually going to be getting it done and getting it out the door. And I think you saw that in the housing summit that Action 22 had where mm-hmm. – you know, DOLA continues to wait for the ink to dry on these bills so they can get information out to uh, local governments on, on how to spend, in their case, the housing dollars. Okay, It's going to be a very, very heavy lift. There was, there was a, a rumor that they were going to do um, a special or a special session. Um, so you haven't heard any more that they would do a special session to s- decide what ARPA dollar what ARPA was or define ARPA? Well, we, had, we had seen the big ticket items in housing and behavioral health, for example, introduced. But I think what we saw was in some of the, the other bills that had one-time federal funds in it, we saw the dollar amount shrink. Um, and so we knew at that point that something was up and that the um, executive branch and the leadership in the legislature was 
trying to negotiate a deal with proponents of initiatives, for example, that cut property tax, to get them to withdraw their initiatives and then replace that with a, a, a in Senate Bill 238, a very late bill, a $700 million in temporary tax um, uh, property tax reduction um, that will go back to the original law in, uh, in the next, after two years um, in exchange to withdraw those initiatives. And, and so that is in part what we saw happening. And so the legislature spent it. If they had it, they spent it. And, um, and in many cases, it was in both parties, but mostly just the majority party and, uh, on some of these key ticket items. And so uh, I don't think you're going to see a special session necessarily because there's really no money left to spend after you do property tax breaks, for uh, example. Okay. Interesting. Um, I wanted to jump in on some, uh, and I guess there was a little bit of drama around this, but we were frustrated with uh, what we what we've come to uh, rely on with regard to the stakeholder process and how there was a there was a failure. Uh, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to piss some people off when I say it, but um, the that stakeholder process that's so vitally important. Um, there was a lot of failures on that. Would you would you start with kind of explaining to our listeners who maybe aren't um, as aware of, of what that is and why that's important, and then talk about what happened in this session? So legislators are not obligated necessarily um, in law uh, to bring in stakeholders both for and against a particular issue, but it does make for better policy when that happens. Um, they're not fun meetings necessarily, especially if you're not winning the argument. And I've been in plenty of those meetings over the years. But uh, it, it is important you get better legislation out of that. Even if folks disagree at the end of the day, at least ideas were shared. Um, and I think you're talking about collective bargaining as, a, as a, a recent example. I know that a recent podcast you had created um, a little bit of, of consternation by the proponents of collective bargaining. And what I would just yes. say is this. For me, the definition of collective bargaining is more than just a 15-minute Zoom call um, with uh, one or two association proponents, and then we're going to do it anyway. That's not productive, um, but it is their right, and it is their privilege um, to do it that way. But I don't think then um, it's, it uh, is fair to then criticize those criticizing the process. And so having said all of that, uh, the collective bargaining bill is reflective of several amendments, not necessarily from local governments, because now the bill doesn't apply to higher ed or K through 12. Uh, it only applies to county government. And having said that, you know, th it was really a conversation between leg Republican and Democrat legislators um, on how to improve the bill. So the I'll call it the special interest for both the unions and the opponents were kind of largely pushed out of that negotiation. Um, between legislators. And as a result, there were some significant amendments. And so um, that, that um, I think still try and meet the goal of folks that want a stronger voice in their workplace and county commissioners who have to manage, you know, uh, uh, county governments in a very complex and difficult time uh, in our history. So at the end of the day, um, I wouldn't have chosen this path to go down to get to that same language, but it is, uh, again, it was this bill sponsor's prerogative. 
When you've seen really effective stakeholder processing in the past, what did that look like? Well, I think ultimately the goal of any legislator is to see if they can't get everyone on board with amendments. And so like you would see, like if you're in your own family kitchen negotiating with your kids, you know, I'll let you go to the movies if you do A and B, you know, you go out and mow the lawn, you know, you can apply that same philosophy or that same undertaking to, well, if I do this amendment to this bill, will you go to neutral or will you support it? Or a lot of times I'll go to people and say, look, if I get this, this language, I'll be for this bill, but otherwise I can't do it. Right. And so that is, you know, that give and take. And there, there, you know, there are quite a few legislators in both parties that are just really good at that. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, legislators, um, you know, um, for the most part are quite honorable and will say, look, I can't do what you want to do. You're just going to have to oppose the bill and we'll see what happens. And, and so there was quite a bit of that. Um, Representative Roberts uh, from um, the Eagle County area tried to come up with a compromise to get some uh, liquor initiatives or uh, liquor delivery initiatives off the November ballot. And he wasn't successful in that, but he really tried and he brought all those people in. And, you know, um, the liquor lobby is, you know, they're they're hard. They're hard to work with. And they all need a drink, frankly, um, to lighten up a little bit. And I'm not one of those, so I can I can speak out of school on that, but uh, to a degree. But um, you know, it, it's just a give and take, right? Instead of just a instead of a give, uh, you know, I'm just going to take and I'm just going to give you my message on how I'm going to pass this over your objection. Sometimes that happens. Um, many times it doesn't. So let's talk about the legislation that we um, worked on in particular. Um, there was stuff outside of that. And just so everybody knows, so this is sort of our process with, with uh, uh, Mike, with Beasley, um, as I refer to him. Um, the, he's, he is our lobbyist pro bono. Which means um, when they want to have when anybody uh, at the legislature, the protocol is that they have a conversation with Beasley, um, and we he helps us interpret what's going on, um, and then we work with uh, we have a specific group or. Our board gets together at the beginning of each session and we talk about what we anticipate will happen and or some of the things that will be the really hot buttons. Uh, and we have a, a couple of our members who sort of weigh in on that discussion. And then we, you know, what are the big priorities for us? What are the things? So we, so Action 22 Board of Directors um, does not take a position until a bill is actually introduced. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason that that stakeholder process is really um, an important one because a lot of the work on what we would support or what we wouldn't or what we'd like to see happen and what wouldn't um, happens in theory, before the bill's introduced. Um, we saw a really good example of this last year when the governor did the whole um, transportation funding. That was a very in-depth. We had lots of discussions. Nobody got everything that they wanted, but by the time we it was introduced, there was enough of a consensus that we, we had to support that bill. Mm -hmm. um, then during the session... Um, Beasley and I will talk often. He meets with our board um, on a regular basis. We to see what's going on and what we would support and what we wouldn't. But that whole amendment process, everything that goes into a very quick management of 700 on average bills, um, 
takes a lot of communication. So I wanted to explain that because we always get questions on that um, as how does this all work and how do we represent our, our membership on that? And that's really the nuts and bolts of how it's done. And we have to pick our fight for which we bills do. and legislation we support or oppose. We can't do it all over everything. It's a specific focused group of bills. It is a specific focus group of bills. And we don't consider anything um, that our membership doesn't bring to us. So if our membership says, would you take a look at this bill? That's when mm-hmm. we put it on the monitor list. And then we, we have those discussions from there. So I don't know how many total we had on, on the monitor list or that we took a position on um, this session for action 22. Um, but it's never, a t- it's never a ton. It's never, it's never more than a few dozen mm-hmm. bills because some of this is just not something that we get into. So I just wanted to talk out that process a little bit so everybody understood. There were some bills early on. Um, so let's talk about the bills early on and then the bills toward the end. There wasn't very much early on. Um, I'm not going to give the numbers because we all forget the net. We'll all forget the numbers in a couple days. But the lawnmower bill was something that we talked about early on in the session. This was an interesting bill. And then um, the outcome was interesting on it as well. So initially, we opposed the lawnmower bill. Um, it was, I think, a, it was Hansen's bill. It was uh, Senator Hansen's bill. Um, and he was trying to fill gaps on um, some environmental issues that he saw that they, we could fill the gaps in on. Um, but that one was resolved fairly early in the session. And we were all kind of laughing at it a little bit because we were calling it the lawnmower bill because one component of it was that uh, it would – you wouldn't be able to buy um, any any outdoor like lawnmowers or chainsaws or whatever over a certain horsepower. Of course, that got down, but there was a lot of other things in that bill. It was really a hodgepodge of environmental policy brought by Senator Hansen from Denver and and some of uh, and some of the environmental lobby. Um, and once, honestly, the bill the bill was introduced to. Um, basically, pro in my mind, prohibit the sale of um, any kind of outdoor equipment with certain size small motors. Um, and it was something that once the public heard about, you know, what do you mean I can't have a lawnmower? Um, you know, uh, members of both political parties were having town hall meetings and were coming back in that first couple of weeks once the media branded the lawnmower bill. Again, even though it had other important things in it, like a, a study at, at the Colorado State University to look at how to reduce emissions in our agricultural sector. I mean, that's a very important right. uh, topic and something that the Farm Bureau, for example, feels very strongly about based on, I think, in my mind, the experience of what's going on in the European Union on the ag sector there and that we probably shouldn't do it like them. We should probably think about it ahead of time. Right. Generic, generically speaking. And, but boy, once that bill was branded the lawnmower bill, even though they got rid of the prohibitions in it and replace it with incentives to buy uh, battery powered lawnmowers, blowers, weed eaters, that kind of thing. It just really just wobbled over into the house uh, where ultimately it died on Tuesday night at midnight as part of those 40 bills. It just didn't get called up because there was just a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of, um, it was branded in a way that it really just couldn't survive. And and Republicans and and marginal Democrats, and what I mean by that are Democrats whose seats are more competitive. They just weren't going to be branded, in my opinion, with voting for a bill with that narrative attached to it. So that's, 
you know, that was a bill that that we were uh, concerned about. We opposed part of a very large coalition that was opposed to it. Um, I'm not sure, uh, or we we expressed deep concerns about it rather right. because the Farm Bureau and others wanted their language. Um, um, and, and most of those elements, solar garden language, you know, to readjust credits for solar gardens that that industry really, really wanted. My guess is we'll all come back, but in separate bills next session. Which seems a smart, the smarter way to go about it instead of trying to shove everything into one bill. Um, but that's a great lesson I think the learned. experience is the more things you put in a bill, uh, the more likely it is that there are folks, there will be enough folks that hate one part or another to, to actually, you know, kill the bill. And I think that was in part what happened there. Yeah. So let's talk about the packaging bill, the 1355, which was initially, this was, um, a, in my opinion, a bizarre premise. Um, and I don't know how, I, I hadn't seen for sure how that turned out. But the premise of this bill was, um, Initially, it was a good, I mean, it was a good idea to do something to actually create um, recycling centers, especially in rural communities. One of the things that we would love to see is recycling centers. The approach to this bill was was a little bit uh, bizarre land, in my opinion. It was um, to um, create nonprofit organizations that any producers that packaging that did any kind of packaging would have to become um, members of that nonprofit organization. But then it would also give that nonprofit organization power to levy fines and all of those proceeds from membership and from um, levying fines um, would go to uh, producing recycling centers and, um, that there was a lot of amendments and a lot of um, exemptions on that bill, but uh, you know, being in an organization, um, I took exception to forcing anybody into membership. Number one, um, and number two, giving the power of a nonprofit to levy fines um, seemed seemed a little um, <sighs> excessive. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, excessive. Excessive is a fine word for that. Um, I couldn't this think of a nicer word. This is an example when special interests come to a legislature, and and I wasn't, you know, involved in this bill necessarily, but from uh, from afar, this is what happens when special interests come in, and they, in this case, um, uh, bottlers of um, soda, things like that. You know, they see their product. Um, and the way they package their product kind of dwindling and how to finance new ways, you know, to keep that market alive, that, that the, the ability to, to deliver, in this case, I'll call it soda, um, uh, you know, keep that alive. And, and the, the, so it's not unusual to see special interests try to come in and influence the legislature. What is unusual is the approach they took and the way you described it. And it really bothered a lot of people, and and they they lacked the votes in the Senate, on the uh, towards the end of session, um, uh, in both from both political parties, and so you did see some amendments done to it. Um, there's um, more of a study component, um, but ultimately, um, you know, the policy will move forward. And I think for me, uh, the troubling nature is to create a a nonprofit outside of uh, government rooted in law 
that has that ability to get into businesses. And, and so we're going to have to see how this moves forward. Um, I will credit the proponents of the bill. They had very good lobbyists who were well ahead of the game and counted their votes and um, were, were quite effective um, in, in achieving the goal. But philosophically now with, you know, Tabor and constraints on budgets, um, you know, there, there's a, there was a real heavy debate about is there really a market for recycling? Um, is most of this stuff ending up in a landfill because China, for example, isn't buying these materials anymore? It was all part of the debate, both in the lobby and on the floor of the of the House and the Senate. And so we'll have to just see how this one goes. But they, the proponents got a lot of what they wanted. We'll have to see how these fees are assessed moving forward. Um, and I suspect we'll see legislation on this as early as next year again as they continue to tweak it and move towards their ultimate goal that you described. Um, I want to talk about three more bills, and then I want you to give us a report on um, the the housing. And some of these are housing that I want to talk about next, but sort of the package of, of um, housing bills. And, and some of the, the, the three that I want to talk about um, really quick with you were frustrating um, for us because I saw them as adding burden with very little um, without the stakeholder process Mm -hmm. really being in place um, and adding burden at a time where um, it's tough. It's to the breaking point. Yes. We're to the breaking point on some of those. And I was, I I got kind of angry about some of those. So let's talk about 1244, which was the air toxins bill. You know, 1244, that's a good example where there wasn't a whole lot of stakeholdering um, and it was brought by Earth Justice and what I will describe, and I don't mean it in a negative way, but more of the fringe of the environmental community. They're, they're not, they haven't traditionally been involved um, like uh, other environmental groups uh, on a day-to-day basis over the years. And, and what they're trying to do is to create a program in the Department of Health that would identify um, toxins um, in our environment. And it's important to distinguish the difference between what we've done in the past as a legislature and as a state to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to address climate change. This is really, in their mind, the proponents who are very passionate about, are we polluting, not, not in terms of, you know, a haze or um, greenhouse gas emissions, but are we polluting our communities from various manufacturing, whether it's from, you know, the manufacture, you know, the burning of coal to manufacture energy or to um, in Lakewood, a company that manufactures um, sterilized medical equipment that they use in surgeries, I guess, and things like that. Right. Um, are, are, are there, are the byproducts of that manufacturing process emitting poison to a level that is unsafe um, and and killing people, creating high levels of cancer and that type of thing. And so to me, I described this um, uh, as I was negotiating on behalf of Action 22 and Aurora Economic Development and others to say, look, you know, you've got a bill here that, um, you you know, you're you're limited to five toxins, but we don't know what they are. And as it was introduced into my words, and granted, right. people may disagree in my assessment, but this is how I would describe it. They were identifying five toxins. They were getting into existing permits of over 2,500 businesses in Colorado that are manufacturing everything from a major coal plant in Pueblo 
to a, the dry cleaner in Alamosa. We're all at risk that somehow this group of unelected officials in Denver were going to say, well, we're going to pick X toxin and we're going to say that you have to reopen your permit and you have to mitigate the emission of that that we know we didn't give you much warning that we were going to do and if you don't do it you have to shut your business down and it was all based largely on an oregon law i don't know about you but i don't really run in uh, circles where people say you know i'd really like to move my business to oregon right, right. and and so when you're thinking about expanding businesses here or attracting new businesses, that uncertainty was unthinkable and unmanageable. And, you know, so you've got that strong view that I just described, plus the real passion of proponents who say, look, we're building refineries and, and um, uh, honestly, crematoriums, you know, the cremate bodies. Uh, that was one of the uh, businesses at risk here. And, and, and we're saying that we don't want you in our communities anymore because we don't know what you're admitting. And so for me, it was like flying an airplane while you're, while you're trying to build it. Right. And that was the example that I used with the legislature to say, look, why don't you figure out what your inventory of toxins are? And then let's figure out how we want to deal with that in terms of permitting. Um, and whether it's new permitting moving forward, because some permits will expire and then they have to be, you know, uh, re-approved. Re um, boy, and we just struggled with that back and forth. And it was one of the most lobbied bills this session. So at the end of the day, um, uh, there was a compromise in the Senate and the senator, the new senator from Pueblo was instrumental in, you know, protecting jobs in Pueblo and in Southern Colorado. So I'll give him credit for that. Um, where he, you know, worked with both parties, Republicans and Democrats, the president of the Senate as well, to say, look, um, we're not going to let the bureaucracy in the Department of Health and the Air Quality Control Commission, you know, just decide what they want to do with, you know, in a boardroom in Denver. If they're going to want a new permit program, they got to come back to the legislature in 2027 after we do some monitoring of emissions. And, and then they need to come back and get legislative approval. Right. And that is what's most significant in this bill and the outcome of it. Um, because what we've seen over the last three or four years is um, the environmental community just wants to shove everything in the Air Quality Control Commission and then give them really unbridled power like no other agency in Colorado. And, and you can see the business community and members of both political parties say, you know what, the legislature should have a say in this. And um, uh, I, I think that – and so that amendment was added uh, to do uh, largely that, to come back to the legislature for any type of new permitting in 2027. There will be oversight each fall by the standing committees. Right. And I, it, this was probably one of the most lobbied bills of the session. It's not perfect. Both sides were completely miserable in the end. Yeah. Normally, I would say that results in good, a good policy outcome. I can't honestly say that. I believe that. I believe that what, what we have here is a can of worms that we've opened, and we're going to continue over the next few years to put the worms back in the can or at least train them to go in a certain direction. Well, there's two things, and I want to say um, Nick Henriksen, who is the senator, senator there, um, not only did he have some discussion with you, but he did um, reach out to us um, and called me um, several times on this and some other bills, and we really appreciated that. That's what we're talking about when mm -hmm. we're talking about what we expect and um, how we deal with our legislators. So he did a good job on that side. I'll, 
I will say that with regard to this bill, those worms are going to grow teeth and start attacking everything around them. Um, I'm deeply concerned about the bill, but in part because of, of something you touched on just really briefly, it's that we, um, we've set up for all of these regulatory commissions or these, um, these decision makers, these um, advisory committees or whatever. And we saw a whole bunch more proposals for these again, this session, um, that, but they're not elected. They don't have to answer to anybody. They're appointed. Um, and they're the ones that are making the decision on this. So I was, I was happy with the part of the bill that makes them go back to the legislature um, for some of this, but um, the idea of, um, reopening permits or making people reapply for permits, any of those. And there were several bills that did this, that we're trying to do that um, in a process that is already so bogged down on the permitting. That's pretty bothersome. Well, it is. And, and at the end of the day, let me say this. And we talked a lot about stakeholdering in this call. Representative Kennedy from the Golden uh, Jefferson County area is one of my favorite legislators to work with because Mm. he actually does engage. Um, He was very involved in every amendment. He told both sides of this issue, yes and no. And he he really did try to thread several needles here. And so I I really do want to give him credit because he's really one of the more thoughtful legislators and and he really tried. Um, We knew what his ultimate goal was. and, And there are people... Uh, in Pueblo, for example, in Commerce City, for example, that have grown up around um, emitters sure. of um, all different types, whether it's a refinery or a coal plant or uh, manufacturing um, industries like in, in Lakewood or Nevada, who just, you know, they're concerned. They don't know what necessary. They don't understand what they emit. They want to exceed what the federal government um, um, is saying is safe. Um and, and I get that because they believe that folks uh, 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 who are in poverty uh, or of color or both um, are unfairly um, affected by these types of, of businesses. And, and I really do respect that. I grew up um, initially right around the, the refinery in uh, Commerce City. And so I know um, how they feel. And I've seen cancer in my own family. I don't know necessarily what's caused it. So I do, we right. have to respect where those folks are coming from. But we often, we have to also respect that you can't just blow up these businesses with very little notice um, without understanding. And it has to be done. If we're going to have this debate, we should do it in the light of day, not in a conference room in Denver. Let's take it to the legislature where that belongs. And and that was really the pillar that most people fought for. I can't say enough again about Representative Kennedy or the Colorado Chamber, right. Lauren Furman, their new president. She's an absolute um, star respected by both political parties. We were part of that coalition. Yep. And I think we made progress and I think it will come back again. Okay, cool. Um, 1362 and 1363, and just because they're right next to each other, I get those two mixed up, but it was the, what I'm calling the Metro District Bill, which got killed ultimately, um, but I really appreciate um, Representative Wiseman on that one. And then um, 13, the other one was the statewide um the statewide building, uh, code. building codes. Um, so can you talk about first the Metro District bill that got killed? Because there were, I, I, 
to be completely fair, there were a number of components. There was just one thing about that bill that we had to oppose it, um, but it was um, it was a very respectful interaction with regard to that. There were some things in that bill that I thought really should be revisited um, on on the Metro District bill. So for the folks that are listening, um, since the uh, voters passed the Tabor Amendment in the early 90s, it really made it difficult for, it, it stopped local governments, cities and counties from doing the traditional investments that they would normally make to build residential commercial development, the roads, the water, the sewer, the common owned areas like parks, um, those types, that type of infrastructure, water reservoirs, um, to, to um, you know, uh, provide for, for new growth, new development, people moving to Colorado. And we're at 5.7 million people now, right. uh, which is quite a bit more since Tabor passed in the early 90s. And so this bill, basically, and a lot of times what happens is the developer will come in and they will own the land and they will go in and they will advance money to build that infrastructure themselves and then they will issue debt to pay themselves back for that advancement that will be paid for by the people who live or work in those communities. Right. And this bill had a huge, in my mind, it stopped that because it, it, it disrupted that traditional sense. It basically said a developer could own some land, but someone else would have to come in, in my mind, and do that. And why, why would Representative Wiseman not want growth or the proponents of the bill to pay its own way? Right. And it's because a lot of times some of those, those it, it, what we've seen in the last 25 years is developers come in and they advance those dollars and then they, they buy that debt and, um, and they charge a higher interest rate, for example, than you know, more than 6 or 7%. It might be 12 or 13% or they might create a penalty for paying those dollars back early. Um, or they might just ignore the community that they live on. And I'll come back to that point in just a second. Right. And so, you know, they were really what, what the proponents were trying to do is to provide some consumer protection in this space. Unfortunately, the proponents of that bill really weren't interested in, in compromising. Right. And they wanted, it was, you know, they really felt strongly about, you know, um, the way that they had written the bill to make it more difficult to do that. But they also put in their bill, you know, more disclosure on debt to consumers when they move into those communities. They um, uh, uh, notice for meetings that those things that just really instinctually make sense, more disclosure of those districts at the Department of Local Affairs about what the the fiscal condition of those districts are. Um, And so there were some amendments offered, you know, that set interest rates based on outside verified, you know, what the going rate was versus, you know, um, stopping the, the program, the, that type of debt issuance outright. And, um, and so ultimately, at the end of the day, that bill did die in the Senate by, um, a, in a bipartisan vote. And the consensus by the Democrat that voted to kill it and the Republicans was, is we have to have growth pay its own way. Right. Local governments are not going to be able to afford to advance these expenses moving forward. So I do think this issue will come back. For someone like me, I live in a newer development in Jefferson County. I actually pay more mills to my district than I pay to the school district. And the developer, in my mind, wasn't very good to work with. They were hard to, they met, they they were 
frankly, in my mind, abusive to the homeowners that were on that board. And so I got mad and I just literally last week got elected to my, my Metro District Board. And the first thing I'm going to do is to make sure that that developer is fired from right. managing the district. And so the statute in my case works, but I'm a professional complainer, as you know. <laughs> and so I knew what I was doing and a lot of people don't. And so there needs to be more done here by the Special District Association to educate people, by real real estate uh, agents and developers to let people know the kind of debt that they're going into in these types of communities and what that really means. I pay, in my case, $3,000 more in my property taxes than the people across the street. But wow. what do I get for that? I get more amenities like parks, open space. Um, you know, taking care of those common owned areas. And I'm paying for all of the infrastructure around me, the roads and the sewers. Right. Um, and so that is that bill in a nutshell. Um, Representative Wiseman um, is one of the smartest legislators down there. He's one of my favorite, absolute one of my favorites. No doubt. His heart is completely in it for consumers. We have to just work to find a balance and that yeah. balance just wasn't there yet. So I hope... Um, and I hope you'll convey to him on our behalf uh, appreciation for reaching out and, and having the conversation, but that we'd like to see um, parts of that all the way up to investment um, because we have to have that because it's a housing issue. We have to be able to have that component well, in there. And, and let's be clear. Let's bring it home for people in the Action 22 footprint. Mm-hmm. This is not a thing that we just worry about in the Denver metro area and COVID has really kind of underscored that. And this high inflation and the recession, I think, that That's we're slipping right. into, people can now work from anywhere. And if you've got good broadband, which is another policy that Action 22 is uh, very involved in, if you've got robust uh, inter- internet connection, that you know, you're starting to see more and more people want to move into, let's call it rural Colorado. And, and so there's no local government down there that can afford to do the things that I just described to you. And we're no. going to see more and more of these districts. And so if you want to bring more people, more businesses and attract and retain the folks that you have and, and provide affordable housing, we need this tool or they need to get rid of Tabor. And I don't believe the voters are going to do that. So no. we can't really throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, this concept will come back. I think you'll see multiple bills next session, and I know Action 22 will be on the forefront. So thank you for that. Um, let's talk uh, statewide building codes, and then let's talk housing, and we'll wrap it up with that. Building codes is one where this is a priority of the governor and the energy office, and I want to credit Will Tour in the, in the Colorado Energy Office for uh, being so collaborative and, and his people in his office. Um, you know, they really want a green building code. And, and part of it is, is, you know, their goal is ultimately Colorado will be a carbon neutral um, um, state, which means everything on the grid will be carbon neutral. Right. And so as we as we build new construction moving forward around, let's call it the 2030 uh, time frame. And we and, and someone goes in and pulls a permit to remodel a commercial or residential structure that the, that that building should be built or modified in a way that not just does the traditional heating, you know, gas heat um, uh, or uh, air conditioning, for example, or kitchen appliances, but that it is wired for electricity for um, uh, a heat pump. Um, or um, a, a fire, a, a non-gas stove, 
you know, so an electric stove and that kind of thing. And to really try and, and get our construction um, uh, and remodeling back to a, a carbon-free grid in our lifetime. And I'm old, so I'm not sure that that's actually going to happen in my lifetime. But um, uh, so that was the goal of the bill. Um, there was an amendment by Senator Simpson that uh, exempted communities under 30,000 or less from, from that bill. So most right. of the communities in Action 22, and I credit him and the bill sponsor and the energy office for working with Senator Simpson. And why, one of the arguments that I think he made effectively was, is, you know, this stuff is expensive. Right. And if you look no further than why do we really need a state mandate to do this? And the answer in my mind is no. And look no further than Superior and Louisville that did it before the fires that we had a few months back. And you saw then the, the community said, now, wait a minute, I'm trying to rebuild my house and you can't add, you know, 10, 20 or $30,000 to the price of this house. I may never want to drive an electric vehicle. Why does my garage need to be wired? For an electric, for electric. vehicle, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know about you, but I love my gas fire pit in my backyard. I don't want to get rid of that. You can't roast marshmallows off a light bulb. That's, that's not a fire pit. That's an easy bake oven. That's what that is. <laughs> and so, um, you know, people like that kind of element in their life. And, yeah. and, and you saw then, as a result, Superior and Louisville withdrew part of their ordinance, the, that mandated building code, because right. people couldn't afford it. And that's really the basic bottom line. And so now that there will be a conversation over the next few years, um, what that building code should look like, um, uh, incentives, I think, additional incentives um, to switch out appliances, to right. to go as carbon-free as you can. And that that's ultimately what that bill will do. We're still digesting those amendments, but the bottom line is a lot of rural Colorado was exempted uh, from it. And, and I think that's a good thing for affordability and sustainability of our local economies. So I think the, and Brian and I had extensive conversations about this as, as we saw that, that there's some definite fear on um, what that's going to cost end user. Um, we had lots, we're having lots of conversation on, on this forced electrification um, part of it. Um and it's, it's really what it's actually going to cost. And is it going to um, help or exacerbate the housing crisis that we're, that we are in right now? And we love Senator Cleve Simpson. We are so blessed. We agree with you. We're so blessed to have him because he brings an authenticity um, and a, a, re- a reality to the assembly of what's you know, happening here isn't necessarily hap- what's happening there with regard to Colorado. Um, so let's talk about housing because that's the big crisis. Um, and everybody's giving, you know, we hear a lot of lip service to housing and trying to overcome this. But right now for us it in rural Colorado, it is a crisis. We can't move forward on um, on any kind of building or building back in any way until we get this housing um, crisis overcome. So there was some good stuff with regard to housing and uh, I'm bridging some gaps. Um, And then there was some stuff like that where we're talking about when we're actually building or actually doing this kind of thing, what, what it would mean for our rural community. So can you talk a little bit about the housing, uh, some of the housing bills that, that we saw this session? We saw a historic amount of money spent, largely federal funds, on top of all the state funds that Colorado has been successful in adding over the years uh, and uh, to, to address housing. 
And it's not just been, we extended the affordable housing tax credit, which is hugely popular. We extended it for seven years. So it'll add another, let's say $50 million to affordable housing tax credit that's used from everything from a housing authority to volunteers of America and private developers to do affordable housing. So we, we supported that bill and I felt uh, very good in the third extension of that particular program. They allocated $105 million um, of federal uh, dollars to really get into homeless, homelessness issues. Um, uh, so support to local governments to provide, you know, sh- funding for shelters and things like that. Um, they put millions and millions of dollars, I'm going to say 40 or so million dollars, not just into the traditional uh, bricks and mortar of, of, of housing, but a real promotion of manufactured housing in Colorado. Right. I thought uh, to me that was of the bills that they did that, you know, uh, quite innovative and, and um, I'm supportive of that. It, it, it allowed local governments to use these dollars to actually buy land. And to help cover the development costs of those lands, similar to what we just talked about, those expenses we just talked about in the previous uh, Metro District bill. Um, so those kind of um, those kind of attempts, um, you know, are really really important. Um, it um, they pass legislation um, to um, I don't want to get it right here. Um, they passed. Uh, legislation um, to build more wraparound services. So for folks that are homeless to, you know, to really kind of help folks get the services they need. It's not just getting them off the street, but can they get the treatment they need? And and really getting into that homeless issue, I think is one of the most important things um, that the the general assembly did. And they, and they did it in a bipartisan fashion for the most part. And that's why I hope, um, uh, that we can see, um, you know, some real success in this area. And again, I want to be clear. I, 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 I think the Department of the Division of Housing and the Department of Local Affairs, they've been given nearly probably over $500 million off the top of my head to spend over the next couple of years. And I think the passing of this legislation was the easy part. We all have a role in helping them achieve success here. Local governments working with Department of Local Affairs to identify these are the things that are important to us and to make sure that there's a rural voice to this. Life right. exists outside the city of Denver. Denver is going to be fine. Denver right. is going to, they have their own federal allocations. They have their own, they're a wealthy community, but we really need to make sure that that places like, you know, Alamosa and Trinidad and Pueblo uh, Colorado Springs actually are really at the table getting these dollars. And that's what Action 22 will will work to um, navigate. But over uh, over $500 million in this space is historic. We'll never right. see it again. And, and understanding know, um, how to access we, that's going to be key. If we write a check back in 2026 back to the federal government with these dollars, shame on us. You can't right. just blame the legislature. you got to blame folks like us who didn't do our job to get get real good programs and conversations locally going. That's why the, the housing summit that Action 22 did um, was so, I mean, I've heard nothing but good comments about it and, and really getting people educated because we have to hit the ground running as right. the ink dries on these bills. And I commend Action 22 for their leadership on that. Well, thanks. Um, so 
one more thing on um, along that line. What our big takeaway was um, from the housing summit is what we're going to do is um, put together or facilitate um, sort of a regional strategy mm-hmm. for that because that's the big thing that we we know is going to have to happen um, is. Everybody, and it's not something that normally is done. Normally, the uh, we have our communities competing, very siloed to compete for the same resources. That's not the case now. They're going to have to be collaborative in a way that, um, frankly, they've never done before. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the best thing um, that we can do as an organization is to facilitate those kinds of conversations on that part of it. Yeah, facilitate it and also encourage involvement because you're right, if um, you're not, get out what you put in, right? And we have to come to the table and, and make sure that the rural voice is heard on this. Um, I have a couple fun questions for you, if you have some time. Sure. Okay. Um, at the kickoff of the session, you came on the show, and we kind of threw around the idea with an election coming up where we don't know what side's going to win on at least the Senate. Um, were they going to go all in or try to work with the other side? Now, I know the answer to this, but looking back at this session, was it all in or did they encourage collaboration? Well, it was collaboration in many cases, but it was by hostage situation, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, and you know, that um, as I said earlier in this, in this podcast, that it's difficult. It was difficult for the, for the majority party to figure out how to spend these dollars. And they waited so long that they created a bottleneck in both chambers, which really empowered the minority party, the Republicans, to say, well, look, we're going to filibuster A, B, and C um, unless we get amendments to D, E, and F. And so, honestly, the Republicans were in the minority, but they were quite powerful, especially in the last two weeks. And they were able to kill bills, and they were able to get amendments. And I credit the Speaker of the House for, and, and the President of the Senate in particular for listening to the minority party. They didn't, frankly, do it just for the good of the cause. They also did it because they had a large agenda they needed to get through in the, in the end. But that's the process, right? And it's one of the reasons why I love where I work and what I do, because it doesn't matter whether they wanted to work together or not. They did in the end on some of these bigger item, ticket items, um, uh, collective bargaining, fentanyl and criminal justice reform, uh, tax policy, uh, education spending and the School Finance Act, Um um, you know, so there were changes made, but it was more, again, through a hostage situation than collaboration. <laughs> but we, we'll take uh, coalition building wherever we can get it. That's true. Do you think the majority party, um, they were happy with the end of this? Or do you think they were a little upset that they didn't get everything put through that they wanted to? I think there's a general, I think it's unsettled. I I, I don't want to say unhappy. I, I think frustration, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um And honestly, for an election year, I always tell the folks that I represent to get their hopes down uh, or lower their expectations that that a lot will get done. This was a historic amount of work that they did in an election year, especially on the spending side and the the key issues that I just referenced. Um, There was a lot of bipartisanship. People shouldn't be depressed, right? I mean, there was some hostage situations going on for those key issues. But look at behavioral health and look at housing. Those are really key issues that they did come together um, to work on. There was a deep-seated attempt on fentanyl to get a compromise that both parties could vote for at the end. That didn't work. But, you know, 
I'd rather try and fail than do nothing and have the status quo as a kind of a, a the nerd that I am around this process. And I, I credit the speaker and others for trying. The um, para getting or paying back para, um, mm-hmm. that was a big win, yes? It, it really was. I mean, para ended up, um, I think over the next few years, getting an extra $1.6 billion um, to help um, – ease that unfunded uh, liability that exists. Right. And, um, you know, and that was a deal that wasn't done until the very last day of session. And I know that, uh, you know, CML, CCI, uh, the education community, uh, Secure Pair and others were quite satisfied with how it turned out. And I think that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of Para in the next couple of years. They have a new board election coming up. Right. Um, And, and um, how we fund schools, how we pay teachers in particular, will be on the f- forefront of is para really doing the job that they need to do? Um, and I think you're going to see their returns because of, I don't know what your retirement looks like, but mine looks terrible after this last year and a market down 20%. So I would imagine para is at a loss this yes. year. And that might be a time we're giving them a bunch of money to buy why things are down right now. And so the question will be is, uh, for para and for folks that care about that. And you're in, in action 22's footprint. I mean, para is one of the largest contributors to your local economy for those who don't know something it. something like so 40% when, or something crazy yeah, like that. When you go into places like Pueblo and the San Luis Valley and in Los Animas County, it's a huge contributor to their economy because you have so many retirees and government right. employees. So that's why for those wondering, listening, why in the world do we care about oh, that? Because it is a goose that lays a big economic egg in your in your footprint, and that's why we pay attention. And so yeah. um, I'm, I was pleased with the compromise there. And school finance was another win that I wanted to make sure that we that we talked about. Absolutely. You know, it's a, we've never put this much money into schools. I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's about $8.5 billion dollars. Uh, into K through 12. So quite a bit more money. We didn't see as many mandates this time as we traditionally see. We saw some um, some compromise on how we do teacher and student assessments um, uh, from Senator Bridges, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, passed a bill he'd worked on in a couple of years on that assessment front. So that's all really, really good news uh, moving forward. Yeah. So and, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one more thing. Sorry. Um, no, you're fine. You know, also for the first time, I'm seeing, at least on a state level, even federal to a point, that um, there seems to be more of a focus on rural issues and, and more involvement from the more metro area. And I, I think part of that is COVID. Like you said, you can, we can work wherever we want. People are moving to these rural areas because they cannot afford to live in Denver. Um, would you agree that they're kind of paying more attention to us down here in the, the country, us country folk? My experience um – uh, is that folks that are vocal and know and let elected and appointed officials that they're paying attention are going to get listened to. And so you'll notice that the narrative this year wasn't a, a you know, you're, you know, either party is conducting a war on rural Colorado. It was more of how can we help rural Colorado? Yeah. I think that narrative that you, you know, the war on rural Colorado has kind of passed us. And now what can we do? to make Colorado more affordable because I want my kids to live here yeah, um, and to stay here. And I want, I, I, I think our higher ed, it shouldn't be cheaper to go to San Diego state versus Colorado state. Right. right? And, and, you know, we have to do better. 
and uh, in our education space. And so I really did see a bipartisan commitment to that. And um, and I think we'll see more. So yes, rural Colorado has a, has a, a place. And I think that's a fitting uh, place for me to interject the following, that Action 22 from where we were a few years ago, we are on the forefront of uh, a strong rural voice, uh, probably the strongest in Colorado, I would argue, um, and giving legislators from your area from our 22 counties kind of the information they need to be better legislators to be more effective is not just been a it's an obligation that we have and I think we've really met that and and really give a voice to people that haven't had it and so I couldn't be more pleased to serve on your board and to be a volunteer in that effort and we made a difference and we will only do great things from here and there's real value into being a member of Action 22, and I urge people to do it. Oh, thank you, Beasley. We appreciate that so much. We're <laughs> going to leave it on that. We thank you so much for all that you do. I think our, our board and our members know in particular um, what you do for for us. Um, every time um, somebody discovers that uh, Mike Beasley represents us um, as our lobbyist, they're always sort of just shocked. How in the world did you get Mike Beasley? Um, I had somebody ask me that um, not too long ago, and I said, they go, why does he do it? And I said, he just genuinely loves serving Coloradans, and he sees Action 22 as a way um, that that can happen. And so we appreciate, um, there's, there's so many people in our area that have been affected by you that have no idea, and they probably never will know what a big champion and advocate. And we, we genuinely appreciate you for that. So thank you. Well, it's very kind. I I appreciate it. It's my honor. It really is. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks again for being on the show with us. Uh, We um, have some interesting discussions that are going to be follow up to the uh, housing summit. Um, You're going to hear next week after after the show. You're going to hear from um, a gentleman. Um, by the name of Carl Dakin with uh, Dakin Capital, um, and we're going to be working really closely with him on uh, on some of the housing issues that are coming up. Um, and then we've got election stuff. This is going to yeah. be now. Now it starts. Now the game really starts, and we're going to see um, what some of these folks are made of and who uh, if they're going to be serving party or serving Colorado. This is going to be interesting. And. I always have to say this. We yes. do not endorse political candidates and no. our views and opinions do not reflect the board of action 22 or its membership. They on don't the show. on the show. So, so nothing that um, necessarily reflects that. Um, and we, we don't endorse, um, we don't endorse candidates, but we do support our members and we have yes. a lot of people who run for office. Just about everybody who's running for office become members of action 22. Yes. And it's because they can have the real, um, they can have the real discussions about what's actually going on um, and what needs to happen next. And this platform is open to any Action 22 member running for any level of office whatsoever. Um, An open invitation to come on the show. to come on the show. We'd love to have you and have some of these discussions. So um, look for all of this. Um, uh, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. um, And in that vein, I hope you just heard uh, Mike Beasley say what... uh, what we're um, that we're the top advocates for rural Colorado. So, <laughs> so uh, you can have that discussion with Beasley later. So thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time. This episode of making action happen is sponsored by action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel energy, Colorado rural electric association, Colorado oil and gas association, Gil Romero and the capital success group, black Hills energy, Nextera energy, San Isabel electric association, outshine energy, 
Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State, and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.